I'm trying to figure out what happened to the missing body of an insurgent religious leader 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine. If you want to get technical about it, and apparently I do, I'm trying to figure out what happened to a Jewish rabbi who history calls Jesus of Nazareth after he was crucified by the Roman government because a conservative religious group was frustrated by his claims to be God. This strange weekend that happened right outside of Jerusalem remains one of the most controversial events in human history. The details are fascinating and the volume of documentation surrounding the case is staggering. And yet, I still have the question, did Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead? Or did something else happen? Was his body stolen or misplaced? Did he actually even die that Friday on top of Golgotha? the hill he was allegedly killed upon? Or is this all a part of some elaborate hoax, an effort to gain religious power and notoriety? After countless hours of studying this subject, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is either one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever imposed on the minds of human beings, or it is the most remarkable fact of human history. I am not a detective, a historian, or even a reporter, but I have begun to realize how difficult it is to sift through all the bias and presupposition that surrounds this case. It's drenched in debate, clouded by emotion, and if somehow a smoking gun were to be found that proved Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, then the world's largest religion would come crashing down like a house of cards. In my investigation, I came across Lee Strobel, Lee is a graduate of Yale Law School and an award-winning investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Lee knew how crucial the resurrection was to the case of Christianity, so he set out to try and disprove it. So Lee, you decided to try to disprove the resurrection? Well, because my wife became a Christian and we started to have conflict in our marriage because all of a sudden our worldviews were were clashing. And so I thought if I could rescue her from this cult that she got involved in, then everything would go back to normal, you know. So I thought if I could disprove the resurrection, I could, which I figured would take a weekend, you know, it can't be that hard. Um, (laughs) Then I could get her out of this cult. That was my plan. So you've got Lee a brilliant academic, an accomplished investigative reporter, and a self-proclaimed atheist out to prove that the resurrection of Jesus is all a hoax. Now, this is a note that I have found to be extremely interesting throughout my investigation. Why do people who do not believe in Jesus devote such large amounts of time and money, some people even devote their lives, to trying to prove that this story is fabricated? I don't know what to think about that yet, but it is interesting and gripping to say the least. 
let me give you what we know to be historically accurate and agreed upon by almost all biblical and secular historians about this cold case. A man named Jesus was born early in the first century, most likely around 3 BC. Seemingly overnight, the popularity and notoriety of Jesus begins to grow large enough for both Jewish and Roman Greco historians to begin to write about his life. For somewhere between one to three years, there is some debate about that number, Jesus of Nazareth garners himself quite the following. Crowds of people are following him around. Even larger crowds are showing up to hear him speak and perform what some call miracles. Whether these reported miracles are legit or some form of magic or illusion, there is still great debate. Early on, Jesus practiced and was viewed as a Hebrew rabbi, a teacher and authority on Judaism. Then historians say, in either AD 30 or AD 33, the cold case in question begins to pick up steam. As Jesus of Nazareth was arrested and tried before the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish judicial body, the Sanhedrin judges Jesus as a heretic who claimed to be God. He was then handed over to the Roman ruler Pontius Pilate, where he was judged as a political criminal. Over the course of just eight hours, from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m., Jesus faces six trials, three religious and three political trials. These trials are documented by Jewish and Roman historians. All three religious trials found Jesus guilty, and all three political trials found Jesus innocent. The Roman ruler Pontius Pilate determines to let Jesus go, but then things take a turn. The crowd becomes aggressive and hostile, and Pilate caves to the pressure and hands Jesus over to be executed. Jesus then experienced a public execution by crucifixion between two other criminals. Crucifixion was the popular form of capital punishment at that time in the Roman Empire. It was brutal, barbaric, and inhumane. The criminal would have their arms and legs nailed to a cross, and then they would hang there until they suffocated on their own blood. The Romans were experts in this form of capital punishment. The process was practiced and precise. But here's where the case starts to get controversial. One theory, the swoon theory, has been proposed that states Jesus didn't actually die upon the cross, but that he merely passed out and then woke up later. Lee Strobel says he investigated these claims in his research. First of all, I found that there's no dispute among scholars that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, the famous atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludeman says it's historically indisputable that he was dead. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that based on the historical and medical evidence, that Jesus was clearly dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. So we have no scholar, historian, or doctor saying they believe Jesus could have survived crucifixion. We actually have no record of anyone surviving a crucifixion. I found this particularly interesting. Jesus' death by Roman crucifixion is found in seven independent documents. Three of those sources were hostile to Christianity, including Josephus, Tacitus, and Marabar Serapian. I practiced saying those names three times. It is statistically impossible for seven independent sources to all make up the same story. The likelihood of seven independent sources fabricating the same lie is not probable. So the question is answered. Jesus of Nazareth died that day on a Roman cross. He did not pass out, go unconscious, and then wake up later to trick people that he rose from the dead. He died. It's a historical fact. So what happens next? This part of the case is extremely important. 
up to this point, things are public. Jesus is tried and executed before witnesses. Crowds of people watch him die. Doctors and historians say he died. But what happens to his body after that? How does the Roman Empire lose the body of such a high-profile political criminal? How does the body of Jesus of Nazareth just up and vanish? Here's what we know. Three days after Jesus was executed, a group of women go to his burial site and find that the body is gone. The tomb is empty. Jesus is up and vanished. But let's not jump to conclusions. Just because the tomb is empty, that doesn't indicate or conclude that Jesus had risen from the dead. There are a dozen other scenarios that are available. Bart Ehrman is an American New Testament scholar. He is an atheist and a skeptic, and he points out the numerous other possibilities available other than resurrection. So let me give you a theory, just one I dreamt up. I could dream up 20 of these that are implausible, but are still more plausible than a resurrection. Jesus gets buried by Joseph of Arimathea. Two of Jesus' family members are upset that an unknown Jewish leader has buried the body. In the dead of night, these two family members raid the tomb, taking the body off to bury it for themselves. But Roman soldiers on the lookout see them carrying the shrouded corpse through the streets. They confront them and they kill them on the spot. They throw all three bodies into a common burial plot where within three days, these bodies are decomposed beyond recognition. The tomb then is empty. People go to the tomb, they find it empty. They come to think that Jesus was raised from the dead and they start thinking they've seen him because they know he's been raised because his tomb is empty. This is a highly unlikely scenario. Bart is right. How do we know the body wasn't stolen? How do we know that Jesus's body even made it to the tomb? This has always been one of the logical explanations in my mind as to why they could not find the body until I began to understand the historical account of what happened with Jesus's body immediately following his execution. Records indicate that following Jesus's death, his body was placed in a new tomb, one that had never been used before by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Check this out. Joseph of Arimathea was a high counselor and a voting member of the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin? The Jewish judicial body that had Jesus condemned to death? I have got to assume that the last thing that Joseph of Arimathea wants is to lose the body, to give people a reason to claim that Jesus rose from the dead. So, Sanhedrin member Joseph of Arimathea places Jesus' body in the tomb. Records then indicate that the tomb was barricaded by a large stone weighing approximately two to 4,000 pounds. And here's where things get really interesting. The Roman seal was placed on the tomb. The Roman seal was a sign of authentication that the tomb was occupied and the power of Rome stood behind the seal, meaning there was a body in the tomb when the seal was placed on it. Here's another note I found especially interesting about the Roman seal. The Roman seal meant that the tomb was guarded by a military unit called the Roman Guard. The Roman Guard was a 16-man unit that was governed by very strict rules. Each member was responsible for six square feet of space. If a member of the guard fell asleep, he was beaten and burned alive. But he was not the only one executed. The entire 16-man unit was executed if one member fell asleep while on duty. 
Historians say that Roman guards didn't lose living bodies, much less dead ones. The tomb was secure, like Smithsonian Museum secure, like White House Secret Service secure. Okay, so we know Jesus died. We know his body was securely buried and securely guarded for three days. And then we know his body up and vanished. So what happened? It still feels illogical to suppose that he resurrected from the dead. There is a principle called the principle of proportionality, which demands extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. For the approximately 100 billion people who have lived before us, all have died and none have returned. So the claim that one of them rose from the dead is about as extraordinary as one will ever find. Historian Keith Parsons, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Houston and holds doctorates in philosophy and the history of science argues this point. My argument against the resurrection is simple. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The purported resurrection of Jesus is about as extraordinary as a claim can get. The evidence in favor of the resurrection is not good, so we shouldn't believe it. It is just a matter of common sense that we should place a high burden of proof on extraordinary claims. So why do I say that the alleged resurrection of Jesus was so extraordinary? Well, surely if we know anything about the world, we know that dead people tend to stay dead. He's got a point. The statistical probability of resurrecting isn't in Jesus's favor. Who knows? Maybe Jesus was just a good teacher who died and his resurrection is a legend that grew over time. It could be similar to the telephone game. Over time, as the message passed from one to another, the details morphed into a fairy tale. Maybe it was a conspiracy. Maybe a few disciples lied for personal gain and Jesus's followers bought into it. I thought this was possible until Dr. Amy Orr Ewing from the University of Oxford talks about how implausible it would have been for the disciples to lie about the resurrection of Jesus. They had a lot to suffer, a, a huge cost to pay for actually um, propagating this idea of a resurrected Christ. Many of the disciples went on to die gruesome deaths, proclaiming that Jesus had actually um, been, been risen from the dead. So why would they do it? They didn't make financial gain from it. They, they didn't appear to make much progress in their own lifetime from this idea. Critical evidence in any legal case is the testimony of witnesses who, and how many, saw what? The word of eyewitnesses has always been the smoking gun. The scenario has been replayed in countless movies. A man is on trial for a crime he didn't commit. Shortly before a guilty verdict is pronounced, a passionate investigator tracks down a hesitant eyewitness who ultimately testifies and proves the hopeless man's innocence. One word from a credible witness can radically change a jury's perspective in a case. No objection no matter how compelling, can stand up against the word of someone who was there. So is there an eyewitness testimony? Jonathan Morrow, professor and biblical apologist, talks about the overwhelming amount of eyewitness testimony and the opportunity that the ancient opponents had to refute the claims of Jesus' resurrection by going to talk to these eyewitnesses. When you look at these claims made by Paul about the resurrection witnesses and appearing to the 500 and even all the names that show up in the gospel accounts themselves, is that you've got living history. You've got the people who were there to cross-check whatever message is being there. So it's not as though that these things could have been invented and no one would have challenged it. You've got this idea that there's witnesses, go investigate them. And ancient historians loved eyewitness testimony. That's what they all wanted. Livy, Herodotus, Tacitus, that, that's what they wanted, was Thucydides, they all wanted eyewitness testimony to get back to the original. 
Historical records indicate multiple witnesses. Mary Magdalene, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the 11 apostles, Thomas, who was reported to have initially doubted, Saul of Tarsus, who was an opponent and skeptic of Jesus and was killing his followers, James, Jesus's brother, and 500 other witnesses. If the 500 witnesses were in a courtroom and each testified for 10 minutes, there would be over 83 hours of eyewitness evidence. That feels like an extraordinary amount of evidence to me. Sir Lionel Luckahoo, world-renowned for holding the Guinness World Record as most successful lawyer for his 245 consecutive murder charge acquittals, wrote, I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for reasonable doubt. But I still can't get around, were these witnesses reliable? Historian Andy Bannister says that the transformation of the early disciples confirmed their reliability. And again, historians take it as a given that something dramatic happened. In fact, the Jewish historian Pinkas Lapide once remarked, he said, we have to ask the question as historians, what transformed the first Christians from a terrified bunch of men and women in fear of their lives to the most self-confident missionary force in world history? What transformed those disciples? And we have to remember, of course, that almost many, many of the first Christians gave their lives and died uh, for uh, proclaiming the truth of the resurrection. And as another historian remarked, liars make bad martyrs. There was a similar court case in the early 1970s. You may have heard it called Watergate. Charles Colson, who once served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon, famously went to prison for his involvement in the Watergate scandal in the early 70s. One detail regarding Watergate was similar to the resurrection. In both cases, 12 men claimed something that would affect world history. In the case of Watergate, it only took two weeks for them to crack under pressure. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. So what do we do with these 12 powerless men, peasants really, who were not facing just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution? Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus's body raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of the apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities. None did. Dr. William Lane Craig points out that this was not true of only the disciples, but also of Jesus's brother, James. Now, think of this. What would cause James to move from becoming an unbeliever and skeptic about his older brother to being willing to die for his belief in Jesus as Messiah? Jesus' crucifixion would only confirm in James' mind that his older brother was delusory. Can there be any doubt that the reason for this transformation in James is what Paul says, then he appeared to James? Now, most of us have brothers. What would it take for you to believe that your brother is the Lord so that you would be ready to die for that belief? Can there be any doubt that this transformation in James is due to the fact that he did experience an appearance of Jesus risen from the dead? 
It's funny to think about what it would take to believe that one of my siblings is God, the devil maybe, but to believe that one of them is God would take some undeniable evidence. And then to be so convinced that they were not only God, but they had raised from the dead to the point I was willing to die for it feels like an impossible fact to avoid. What would it take for you to believe that? Could this be true? Could Jesus's body that had just up and vanished really have been raised from the dead? Was this obscure Jewish rabbi really the son of God and savior of the world? If he really died on that Roman cross, medical historical fact, if his body was securely protected and meticulously presided over from the time of death to the time of burial, if his body was intensely guarded by a trained Roman guard who faced the punishment of death for losing his body, if 500 plus eyewitnesses claimed to have seen him alive, claimed to have spoken with him, touched him, eaten with him, and if hundreds of people, including Jesus's brother, James, were willing to die for their claims of his resurrection, then I have to ask myself, what is the more likely conclusion? Why would these men die? Nothing to gain, everything to lose. Why would Saul of Tarsus go from killing Christians to dying for the religion he once persecuted? And why, for 2,000 years, has no one been able to produce a better explanation for what happened to this missing body? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he prove his claims to be God? Did he defeat death, sin, and hell for all mankind? Or did he just up and vanish? The choice is up to you. So what do we do with all of this evidence, with this overwhelming medical, historical, and scientific evidence? If all our modern-day attempts to dismiss and disprove the resurrection have been debunked, then there are some unavoidable consequences for people like me and you. Like, like what, do, what do we do with that? What do you do with that? You know, in light of all this overwhelming evidence and, and hearing it time after time over the course of the week, because of course I listened to it quite a few times over the course of this week, my heart's filled with confidence and gratitude that my faith doesn't rest on me just crossing my fingers and hoping that it happens. I don't just have to grab a penny and go down to the fountain at Taco Mac and throw it in and say, I wish, I wish, I wish that Jesus really rose from the dead. I don't wish upon a shooting star. We have historical, verifiable evidence that he is risen. That's something worth celebrating on Easter. That Jesus, who was born in a small outpost of the Roman Empire, so small most people would not have even stopped to go through. We would have said it has one red light to give it some value. He's born out of nowhere, comes claiming to be God, claiming this ability to forgive sins, begins to heal people, begin to, begins to perform miracles, and garners a large following that threatens the Jewish religious establishment so that they hand him over to the Roman government on charges of blasphemy to be executed. And the Roman government verifiably executes Jesus on a cross and then because he had predicted that he would be gone after three days, 
place. They roll a 4,000-pound stone over the mouth of his tomb. They guard his body with 16 Roman soldiers at threat of their own death, only to have his body up and vanish. And he showed up as evidence to tell people what had happened. And then he leaves us with the crown jewel of evidence. Witnesses. Flesh and blood witnesses. People who that Jesus' enemy couldn't refute. They couldn't dispute the witnesses that were left that began to tell the story. You know, one of those witnesses was a guy named Paul. Paul is known as one of the greatest missionaries in the Bible. And Paul wrote some words. He wrote some words about the witnesses. And he says this about the resurrection. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he says this, it's of first importance. It's primary. It's at the beginning. It has more weight than anything else that Jesus died and Jesus rose. This has implications for our lives. It has consequences for us today. One of the consequences that we have is that that he is not dead. He is still alive. That Jesus defeated death. That Jesus is still alive. The God that we celebrate is not a God who's dead. He is a living hope. Now, Now, just think about this. There is no other religious leader, no other leader of any type of spiritual movement who is not dead. They all died. If you went to their tombs, you would be going to worship their bones. Nobody goes to Jesus' tomb to see his bones. His bones are not there. They are gone. He has died. And here's another thing that's really important about his resurrection from the dead. He defeated death. He didn't just outrun death. He defeated death MMA style. (laughs) Chokehold, death tried to tap out, and he didn't let it. Jesus defeated death. Can you do that? Like, can you do that? Like, we don't always think about our death. And for some of us, we need to, we probably need to consider it because we are going to die. The reality is no matter how smart you are, no matter how many businesses you start, no matter how much kale you eat, you, you will die. We can't defeat death. And Jesus defeated death. It is of first importance. He was raised to life so that we can be raised to life. Then we see Paul list some witnesses. It goes on, he says, he says, and that, the, that Jesus, he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Now, another, another name for Cephas was this guy named Peter. Maybe you've heard of Peter. Peter was the apostle Peter. He was one of Jesus' top three lieutenants. He had some really great moments with Jesus. There's this one time when Jesus says, Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, good job, Peter. You're exactly right. You're really getting this thing down. I'm really proud of you. In the very same conversation, He begins to tell Peter the plan that he was going to have to be executed and he was going to have to go to the cross and die, but that he would rise again. And Peter says, hold on, Jesus, come here a minute. He says, I don't think you should be telling the boys here that you're going to die. It's going to disturb them. You know what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus calls him Satan. Have you ever been called Satan by anybody other than your wife? Somebody calls you Satan, you're you're not prone to follow them when things get difficult. Peter was known as as cowardly in certain situations that he denied Jesus as Jesus was going to trial. But then Jesus, Peter preaches and he boldly proclaims the message of Jesus' resurrection. Peter's arrested for it, condemned to die. And, And legend has it that these were Peter's words. Peter says, I'm willing to die for my Savior, but not like my Savior. 
And they hung him on a cross upside down. And he never recanted because he believed the evidence. There's another, another guy mentioned here, James. It says he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, meaning the 12 apostles. He appeared to more than 500 people. That's the 83 hours of testimony that our host re- referred to at one time, most of whom are still alive, though now some of them have died. It was 2,000 years ago. They're dead. And so not, not, not offensive. It's just reality. And then he appeared to James. James is his brother, right? James is his brother. How many people have a brother? All right. You know where this is going. James... Initially, when Jesus started saying he was the son of God, James begins to think he's crazy. James and his other brothers get their mother Mary. They go and knock on the door of a house to rescue Jesus from embarrassing himself. And he's like, nope, I'm God. So James, when Jesus rises from the dead, James becomes the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Okay, now, just to remind you that Christianity was birthed out of the Jewish religion Jesus, obviously, coming to the Jews and being a Jew. So the early followers were all Jewish. They followed the Jewish rituals and rules and religious customs. And so there came a point when people like most of us who were not Jewish wanted to follow Jesus. And so they had this debate, do they have to follow the rules or not? And so James, who's the pastor of the first church, says, no, they do not have to, especially the eating dietary laws. So here's what that means. You can thank James for bacon. (laughs) James, the first pastor of the first church, was Jesus' brother. James, who believed that he was crazy. James, who became the pastor. James, who was thrown off the temple and clubbed to death for his faith and never recanted because he believed. He believed the evidence. And then you have Paul himself who wrote this passage. Paul says this, last of all, after he's listed the other witnesses, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul initially was a religious leader. He was very high up. He had a very, very high ranking in the Jewish uh, religious system. They appointed him to run up and down the the, uh, countryside of Israel, of Palestine, to arrest Christians and hand them over to be tried on blasphemy. Many of them were executed, because, and, and Paul watched them. But then guess what happens to Paul? Paul has an experience with Jesus, and Paul changes teams. Paul changes teams. Listen, you don't change teams unless there's something in it for you, do you? You don't change teams unless there's some benefit for you. Chocolate ice cream lovers don't change to be vanilla ice cream lovers. Republicans or Democrats don't change to be the other party unless there's some benefit. Georgia Tech fans don't change to be Georgia fans unless you want to win. (laughs) Keeping it real, Stone Creek. (laughs) Your employer's probably a a Georgia Tech uh, graduate, but... um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> that can go both ways, right? So, so listen, we don't change teams unless there's a benefit for us. Why did Saul do that? Why would he change teams? Why would Saul do that? Paul. Paul changed teams. What did he get? What was his benefit? Paul got shipwrecked. Paul got persecution. Paul got arrested. Paul eventually got decapitated for his faith. Like, is that, why did he change? Because he understood the value of the resurrection 
And he understood that there was more to life than he currently saw. He understood the power of Jesus raising to life. And he understood that it would transform him and transform others for centuries. You see, it didn't just stop 2,000 years ago with Paul and with Peter and with James. It continues on to this day. And here's how it works. Here are the implications for me and you. Jesus rises. If he rises, then we rise. If we rise, if we rise, then there is more to life than we're currently walking in. There's more joy. There's more victory. There's more peace. There's more restoration. There's more healing. There's more worship. There's more purpose. There is more. And there's more for your life. Why is it with this at our disposal that we live such small lives? Why is it we settle for, for such temporary happiness? Why is it that we have our main conversations through the week or complaints about traffic or, or pollen or parking at the 1030 service on Easter Sunday? <laughs> Why is it that the big thing we look forward to the most is our next vacation or our next raise or our retirement? When infinite, lasting satisfaction is the offer that we have through the resurrection. We just ignore the evidence. And the, the, the irony of our, of our generation is that we say things like, it's my life, I can live it how I want to. Captain of my own ship, master of my own fate. And what it has delivered to us is anxiety, stress, and exhaustion. Anybody tired this morning? It didn't just stop there with Peter. It didn't just stop with Paul. It didn't just stop with James. What's transcendent about the resurrection is that there are more witnesses today than there were 2,000 years ago. There are more witnesses alive today than there were 2,000 years ago. Usually when there's a witness, that witness dies and it's over. There are no more witnesses. There are more witnesses today. How can that be? How can that happen? It's because people who believe the evidence become the evidence. People who believe the evidence, they become the evidence. So Peter believed the evidence. Peter believed the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. He was transformed. He became the evidence because he could tell a story of how God restored him from being a coward to being courageous. James, Jesus' brother, he believed the evidence. He was transformed and he went from someone who believed his brother was crazy to being martyred for his faith in his brother because he, and he became the evidence. Paul believed the evidence, was transformed, became the evidence. The Prissa, who we heard about in Indonesia, she believed the evidence and she became the evidence. She was transformed. She lived a different life. She sees things differently. Her heart has been made alive. She was raised to life because Jesus raised her to life. And for many of you, that's the story. You are the evidence because you believe the evidence that Jesus was alive and he raised you to life, and you became the evidence. So what happens? How does this work itself out? For those of us who we hear that voice of guilt and shame from the mistakes of our past, or the sins that we've committed, or, or, or the regrets that we have, Jesus comes in, 
completely silences it and offers emphatic forgiveness so that we can have a new life and we become evidence. For those who live with the pain of sadness because of tragedy or sorrow or destruction, Jesus transforms it into abundant joy and we become evidence. For those who may live with anxiety and depression and it feels like you can never quite catch your breath. Jesus comes in and offers the breath of life and you become evidence. You become evidence just like them. Before Jesus, I was dead in my heroin addiction. Before Jesus, I was dead in my own success. Before Jesus, I was dead in my own worthlessness. Before Jesus, I was dead in Islam. Before Jesus, I was dead in my worldliness. Before Jesus, I was dead in my own complacency. Before Jesus, I was dead in abandonment. Before Jesus, I was dead in worthlessness. I was consumed with the lie that I would never be good enough. I was trying to prove my worth through success in material things. I lived a life of shame. I was a mistake, born to a 19-year-old girl who was taken advantage of. I was living a sinful life, completely addicted to worldly activities. Before Jesus, I was dead in my worldliness. They set me on a destructive path and led to loneliness and shame. Before Jesus, I was dead in my heroin addiction, searching for anything to fill the void. Before Jesus, I was dead in my fear, fear of what others thought of me and fear that people would see the real me. Although I'm from a Christian family, I completely ruined my youthful life, searching for worldly lust. Before Jesus, I was dead in abandonment. When I was 13, my dad walked down on my family, leaving me feeling unworthy, unloved, and rejected. But then Jesus raised me to life. But then Jesus raised me to life. But then Jesus raised me to life. And now I'm alive in his love. Now I am alive in his family. Now I am alive in his love. And now I'm alive in his purpose. Now I'm alive in his purpose. But now I am alive in his freedom. Now I'm alive in his worthiness. Now I'm alive in freedom. Freedom to be who God made me to be. And I know in my heart, peace is trusting God. Jesus lifted me to my feet and set me on a new path. He lifted the weight of shame and allowed me to step into a new life with Christ. And now I'm alive for his purpose to share his gospel. I know that his truth says that I am chosen and loved. I know I am a daughter of the King, always loved and always fought for. Jesus rescued me as a little girl of five years old. And I knew he loved me. I knew I was valued and treasured. 
My name is Ryan Grant, and I am Evidence 2. I'm Callie Brannon, and I'm Evidence 2. I'm Lima Jennifer, I'm Evidence 2. I'm Akal Moses, and I'm Evidence 2. My name is Jeremy Booth, and I am Evidence 2. And I'm Rajkumar Jaipal, and I'm Evidence 2. My name is Katie Rickard, and I'm Evidence 2. My name is Tally Cheeseman, and I am Evidence 2. My name's Don Brahms, and I'm Evidence 2. I was dead in my anxiety and insecurity, and he raised me to life, to have a place. My name is Stephen Gibbs, and I am evidence, too. And my great desire is for you to, have a, to be evidence today, to, for you to know that you have a place, that you have worth and value that you can be forgiven, that the voices of your past can be silenced, and the voices that tell you you don't measure up and you don't fit in, that you try to outrun with your achievement can be completely eradicated. And the way that we do that is by just a simple confession of the evidence. We just confess with our hearts that we believe the evidence, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead to give us life, and we trust him with everything. What we know that that is when you confess with your heart to God, it's called prayer. That we just pray to God and commit to God. Aren't you tired of the stress and anxiety, uh, of the sleepless nights, of the confusion and the questions in your life? I, I wanna help you with that today. That's what today is about. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer today. And so if you would, just bow your heads while I pray for us and lead you in a prayer. For some of you, today's the day that you believe the evidence. Evidence has been presented, it's been undeniable, and you realize that even while you've seen it before, you've never really followed it. You've never trusted God. You've never made it the commitment of your heart. And I just want to be able to help you get there today. Some of you know that you've pretended. Some of you know that you really haven't believed. Some of you thought you believed but realized today you haven't because it has no consequences in your life. And if for the first time you want to place your faith in Christ or believe the evidence, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe the evidence. Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. And he has raised me to life. I give you my life. And just in this moment of prayer, if that's, if that's something that you prayed today, if that's something that's in your heart and your, your heart is burned and you know this is what you were made for, this has been the unanswered question, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand in the air. I'm going to count to three. I'm just going to give you an opportunity to slip it in the air so we can make eye contact just to solidify this decision in your heart today. So on the count of three, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand and let's make eye contact. One, two, three. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Got you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All over the room. Thank you. Hey, let's just celebrate that real quick. Come on. Dozens of people have just 
made this decision that it's gonna change their life. It's gonna change their life. Listen, we wanna celebrate that. As we close out our time together, we just wanna worship together. We wanna just sing praise and tell Jesus how worthy he is because he is our living hope. He is the one who defeated death so that we could defeat death. As we sing, I'm gonna ask you, if you made a decision today, just slip out to the back. We have some trained counselors that will just offer you a next step and pray for you. And here's what I know. Some of you wanted to, but you just didn't. Maybe it's out of embarrassment, maybe it's out of questions. And sometime during the middle of this song, you're gonna have that tug on your heart. At any point, just walk to the back, you'll see a trained counselor back there that can help you as you understand what it means to believe and become the evidence. Let's stand together as we sing.